Let's open our Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. good? Okay. 2 Samuel chapter 5, I'm going to be reading beginning at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of this place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the, in the valley of Raphaim. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come again, or come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geber, Geba to Gezer. Thank you, Pastor. I'd like to call on our beloved Pastor Cal Reed to lead us in prayer, please, Pastor, if you would. Learning to lean on God. That's the single most important factor that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to live our lives for the purpose to which he has created us, to bring honor and glory to his all-holy name. Learning to lean on God. Not long before his death, Henry Newman wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys, He writes about some friends of his who were trapeze artists called the Flying Rudellas. They told Nguyen there's a special relationship between flyer and catcher on the trapeze. The flyer is the one that lets go. The catcher is the one, obviously, who catches. As the flyer swings high above the crowd on the trapeze, the moment comes when he must let go. He arcs out into the air. His job is to remain as still as possible and wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him from the air. One of the flying Rudellas told Nguyen, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. 
The flyer must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. Our setting before us is as follows, simply this, that David, the shepherd boy, was anointed at the age of 17. He was anointed to become Israel's king when King Saul's reign was over. After waiting 13 years, 13 years, that's almost as much as he had been tending the flock of his father out in the hills of Bethlehem. 13 years, David was then installed as Israel's second king upon the death of King Saul. During David's 13-year wait, he progressively learned to lean upon God as his own king of the kings. As God was using David to terminate Saul's dynasty, David had the God-given responsibility to remove the godless tyranny of the Philistines from the land of Israel. In following this mandate of Almighty God, David desperately stood in need of leaning on God's wisdom as to the just counsel of the proper course of action to take. If you would like a premise to the message this evening, it is simply this as follows. Since God has created us and has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ, we need to lean on him in all things. Tonight we're going to be seeking some understanding of this passage from three standpoints. They are as follows. First of all, David had a high view of God. Secondly, we'll consider that David had a trust in God. One thing, perhaps, to have a high view of God, perhaps another thing, to trust in that God for whom he has such a high view. And thirdly, David had an obedient lifestyle. One thing, to have a high view of God, and one thing, to trust in that God. But what do we do with the trust? Oh, I feel great. I feel wonderful. I trust Almighty God. I'm going to live the way I want. I trust him. Oh, no, we don't. Unless, as with David, we have an obedient lifestyle. We take the trust and we live on the basis of that trust that comes from this high view of God, that God would continue to stir in us an ever-increasing sense of the majesty of Almighty God. These children tonight ministered to me in unbelievable ways. All they wanted to do was to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, which meant for me all I wanted to do was to listen. Actually, I wanted to do more. I wanted to jump up and become one of those little ones again and sing with them. Praise God for the way he ministers to us. First, David had a high view of God. Two observations. Observations? Yes, here they are. Two. Number one, he viewed God as transcendent. Transcendent. George J.C. Marchant has considered this word transcendence this way. That is a difference or an otherness. Or he is the Holy One in the midst. Or he is independent 
and different from his creatures. Now, God has given us God-like qualities by his own choice and plan. But we are not God, and we're not becoming God, and there's no confusion that God is God, and we are not. He is infinite. We are finite. He's eternal. We are time-bound. David had a high view of God. Do you have a high view of God? Oh, yeah. I see it every time you have given me the privilege to sit among us as a congregation in this place, a high view of God. In the year 1715, Louis XIV of France died. Louis, he called himself the Great, was the monarch who made the infamous statement, I am the state. I am the state? His court was the most magnificent in all of Europe. His funeral was spectacular. His body lay in a golden coffin to dramatize the deceased king's greatness. Orders had been given that the cathedral should be very dimly lighted with only one special candle set above his coffin. Thousands waited in hushed silence. Then Bishop Massillon began to speak. Slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle, and he said this, Only God is great. Turn with me in your Bibles to the last chapter of the book of First Chronicles, chapter 29. David now is preparing himself and Israel for the torch to be passed from himself to his son Solomon. David prays in the assembly. And this is the first part of his prayer. This is 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Now notice, by contrast, the response of David regarding himself, verse 14. But who am I? What is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Of your own have we given you. There is an offering taken earlier this evening. Who gave the offering to whom to whom? Now, I said that precisely the way I meant it. God gave the offering to us to give to him. 
So we can never dynamically say, I've given all God all this stuff. Not dynamically. We haven't given God anything. Not dynamically. David had a high view of God. Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was pastor in London, England. John Piper regarded Dr. Lloyd-Jones as being the greatest preacher of the 20th century. This is Lloyd-Jones' message to aspiring preachers. He says, what is his chief end of preaching? I like to think it is this. It is to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. As I've already said, during this last year I've been ill, and so I've had the opportunity and the privilege of listening to others instead of preaching myself. As I have listened in physical weakness, this is the thing I have looked for and longed for and desired. I can forgive a man for a bad sermon. Well, I tell you, I really thank the Lord for that. You don't have to say amen. You can if you want. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God. If he gives me something for my soul. If he gives me the sense that Though he is inadequate himself, he is handling something which is very great and very glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, the magnificence of the gospel, if he does that, I am his debtor and am profoundly grateful to him. Observation number two. He viewed God as imminent. Not imminent, which means at any time, but imminent. Not eminent as the greatest or the highest, but imminent. Sounds like I'm speaking Italian and I never learned that language. But imminent is something like this. God is near in the sense that he is accessible to the creation that he loves. He works providentially and graciously in our lives. Turn to Psalm 139. I love this psalm. This is my favorite psalm. This is my favorite, my favorite book, my favorite verse. Pick any one of those you want. They all apply. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. What's that? Your eyes saw my embryo. Wow. In your book were written, every one of them, the days you formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Now at the end of the psalm, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. and Know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist viewed God as imminent, always accessible in his providential grace and mercy. Turn to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. Oh, I love this passage. Where do you see this passage? Verse 25. <clears throat> At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will, tell me, I will give you rest. Let's continue. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find, tell me, rest for your souls. Every single time, by God's grace and mercy, I come through those doors. Every single time, you, my beloved brothers and sisters, and our beloved pastors, you give me rest for my souls because you're looking to Jesus. 
I thank God for you because you're looking to Jesus. You look any other place and I'm not interested. And you can't do a thing for me as a growing Christian. I am gentle, says Jesus, and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Secondly, David had a trust in God. Two observations. Surprise. Number one, he habitually inquired after God's will. My beloved son-in-law is with us today. I hope you don't mind, Spark, but I'm going to tell you anyhow. And our uh, very precious daughter, Carrie. And the guy that wears the hat is my grandson. Pretty nifty, huh? Reminds me of Xavier, the hat guy. Okay. Sparky came to me one time years ago. I'd like to know if I could have your daughter's hand in marriage. I said, I, don't have one, I only have one question that you need to answer. So what did we do then? We ate our steak. It was on him. Had a great meal. And after we were done eating, I said to him, as I recall, I bet you wonder what that one question might be. He said, it did cross my mind once or twice. I said, Spark, I only want to know this one question. What does God want? That's all I need to know as Carrie's father. What does God want? I remember his answer. As far as our hearts are right before God, we want his will to be accomplished and we believe that God has brought us together to be man and wife the rest of our lives. I said, welcome to the family. Don't you want to know how much you make? I'm not interested. I don't care. Don't, don't you want to know about houses? I'm not interested. I don't care. What does God want? What's that all about? Try this for something new tonight. Learning to lean on God. Turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I love this passage. This is a passage and a half. James chapter 4, verse 13. <laughs> what are some reasons to seek God's will? What are some reasons to seek God's will? Let me read these five verses. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever 
knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What's that all about? If you have pen and paper, you might want to consider writing down briefly four different reasons to seek God's will, which I have gleaned from this text and others. Reason number one, because God is the God of past, present, and future. Why would I seek his will? Because he's the God of the past. Why would I seek his will? Because he's the God of right now. Why would I seek his will? Because he's the God of tomorrow, the future. That's all I need. Second reason, because God will never lead us astray. He'll never lead us astray. Well, we get goofed up in our own thinking, in our own emotions. We go all over the place. But God never leads us astray. Reason number three, because God has gone before us to accomplish his will in our lives. Because God's already traveled the route that's ahead of us. He did it from his omniscience. But he also did it through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in every way was tempted as we are yet without sin. What are we left with? Lean on him. Trust him. Sounds too simplistic. I don't care how it sounds. I understand simplistic. I'm just a person like you are and you are like I am. But it's true. It's from God. Number four, reason to seek God's will. Because God's will is always perfectly the best way. I tell you, when someone comes along and purports this heresy that says, God has plan A and God has plan B and C and all the rest. And if plan A doesn't work out, God has a plan B. No, he does not. Categorically, not. He only has plan A. When I come to God and I say to him, I know what your will is. I don't want to do it. All we have to do then is to look to God in simple faith and say this, for does God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. There's no plan B with God. Oh, we have plans all over creation. We'll go A through Z a number of times and back again and somehow think that this will be imposed upon God. That's where he's doing. He's going back and forth and bouncing. No, he's not. He's God. We lean on him. How many in this room, by show of hands, have ever heard of the book, The Valley of Vision? You've been listening to our pastor, because <laughs> he quotes from that from time to time. This is a collection of prayers and writings of the Puritans. I'd like to share one with you that's called simply The Divine Will. Listen to these words. O oh Lord, I hang on thee. I see, believe, live, when thy will, not mine, is done. 
I can plead nothing in myself in regard of any worthiness and grace, in regard of any of in regard of thy providence and promises, but only thy good pleasure. If thy mercy make me poor and vile, blessed are thou. Prayers arising from my needs are preparations for future mercies. Help me to honor thee by believing before I feel. For great is a sin if I make feeling a cause of faith. Show me what sins hide thee from me and eclipse thy love. Help me to humble myself for past evils, to resolve to walk with more care. For if I do not walk before thee, how can I be assured of my salvation? It is the meek and humble who are shown thy covenant. Know thy will, are pardoned and healed, who by faith depend and rest upon grace, who are sanctified and quickened, who evidence thy love. Help me to pray in faith and so find thy will by leaning hard on thy rich, free mercy. By believing thou wilt give what thou hast promised. Strengthen me to pray with the conviction that whatever I receive is thy gift so that I may pray until prayer be granted. Teach me to believe that all degrees of mercy arise from several degrees of prayer that when faith is begun, it is imperfect and must grow as chapped ground opens wider and wider until rain comes. So shall I wait thy will and pray for it to be done and by thy grace become fully obedient. Observation number two. David was teachable and flexible to the Holy Spirit. Is there anyone here under 12 years of age that knows what a telegraph is? Raise your hand. Cool. There are a couple that know. Well, I wouldn't expect us to know because it's not high technology. And the technology is out of our culture. It's gone, uh, essentially. So we're going back in history. Back when the telegraph was the fastest means of long-distance communication, a young man applied for a job as a Morse code operator. Answering an ad in the newspaper, he went to the address that was listed. When he arrived, he entered a large, noisy office. In the background, a telegraph clacked away, a sign on the receptionist counter instructed job applicants to fill out a form until, and wait until they were summoned to enter the inner office. The young man completed his form, sat down with seven other waiting applicants. After a few minutes, the young man stood up, crossed the room to the door of the inner office, and walked right in. Naturally, the other applicants perked up. Wondering what was going on, why had this man been so bold? They muttered among themselves that they hadn't even heard any summons yet. They took more than little satisfaction in assuming the young man who went into the office would be reprimanded for his presumption and summarily disqualified for the job. Within a few minutes, the young man emerged from the inner office escorted by the interviewer, who announced to the other applicant, gentlemen, thank you so very much for coming, but the job has been filled by this young man. The other applicants began grumbling to each other 
And then one spoke up and saying, wait a minute, I don't understand something. He was the last one to come in. We never even got a chance to be interviewed, yet he got the job. That's not fair. You ever hear that? Ever said that? I have. The employer responded, I'm sorry, but all the time you've been sitting here, the telegraph has been ticking out the following message in Morse code. If you understand this message, then come right in. The job is yours. None of you heard it nor understood it. This man did, so the job is his. God uses specific means to demonstrate his care, his word, and his spirit. We need only to be alert to these signs. Learning to lean upon God. Thirdly, David had an obedient lifestyle. Take a guess how many observations might be coming up. Yeah, two. That's a good number. Observation number one. He obeyed God whether it made sense or not. Wow. He obeyed God whether it made sense or not. Oftentimes, when the reality of a certain course of action is positive, there's been a victory that's been experienced. Oftentimes, we have the tendency to come back and do precisely the same thing because it worked once and it worked well. David refused to do that. Would you turn to verse 23 of our text? This again is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 23. And when David inquired of the Lord, and when David inquired of the Lord, look back at verse 19, same chapter. And David inquired of the Lord. Two separate occasions that were similar because they were military actions. Occasion number one, God, what do I do? Philistines all around, what do I do? Occasion number two, on the heels of great victory, David comes back and he has only one question and it's the same as the first question. God, what do I do? That's what we need to do continually in our lives. When something works, there's nothing magical in it. There's no formula that's needed to be repeated. We need to go back to God and say, God, what do you want? What do we do? Where do we go from here? Every single time we have to ask that. David asked it. No wonder God looked at David and says, he's a man after my own heart. <laughs> this is how I think. This is how I work. That's what he's doing. He's looking at me. David learned to lean on God. From the Encore group. I need someone to stand and recite Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Who'd like to do that? Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Anyone? I imagine parents now are giving little nudges to the kids. Okay, someone start us off on those verses. Yeah, go ahead. 
Who said that? Daryl, did you say that? Oh, someone else said that. Trust. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. I got this all figured out. No, we don't. (laughs) Otherwise, why would we lean on God? I have it all together? No, we don't. Does he? (laughs) Of course. I'd like someone to quote, you may read it if you want. I I don't care if we read it or recite it. It doesn't make any difference. But Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Would someone recite those verses for us or read them? Philippians 4, verse 6 and verse 7. What a passage. Jot it down, study it, and always let God put it deeply into our souls. Observation number last. Don't you love the word last? Except for when my preacher, my pastor preaches, I keep wanting to say, why are you stopping so early? Can't you just go another hour or two? And I'm here. (laughs) I'm here. David submitted himself completely to the given task. Lord, I'm going to do everything and only what you have put in front of me. That's all I want to do, and I'm committed to doing that. I'd like to name the old hymn writer who wrote an old hymn but I can't because it was anonymously written. So in closing, let me read this. Eternal Savior, God of love, abused, insulted friend, O from thy lofty throne above, thy saving mercy send. Here lies my naked, guilty heart before thy piercing eye. To me, thy healing touch impart. Oh, reach me, for I die. All that my future life shall know of love and joy and light shall burn for thee and shine and glow by thine effectual might. Thus to thy claim my trembling soul her sweet submission brings, and thus while changing ages roll shall rest beneath thy wings. And now I close with another mentor of mine, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, God kept his son waiting, and he may very well keep you in like pasture for, excuse me, in like posture. For how long did you delay and cause the God of grace to wait on you? But I can't see how I'm to be delivered. Wait! Oh, this is such a heavy burden. Wait! But I'm ready to die under this terrible load. Wait! Wait on. He is worth waiting for. Wait is a short word, but it takes a great deal of grace to spell out its full meaning and still more grace to put it into practice. Wait, wait. Oh, but I have been unfortunate. Wait, 
but I have believed a promise and it has not been fulfilled. Wait, for you are in blessed company. You may hear Jesus saying, I waited patiently. He is teaching us to do the same by his own gracious spirit. Hence, since God has created us and redeemed us, we need to lean upon him in all things. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would apply this word to our living, our intellect, our emotion, our volition, our actions, our words, as only you can do. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us in such a way as to open our hearts to the things of our God and the same blessed Holy Spirit close our hearts to everything less. Take the words that I have spoken tonight and burn up the words that are superfluous that we may remember them no more forever and enable us to hang on only to that which you have intended for our own souls this evening. And we ask it in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you for coming.